This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today's guest is a civic treasure in the variety arts with a mix of classical vaudeville tricks that have a special theatrical and seductive spin. She is an actor and street performer with a stage act that has been seen at the World Busker Festival in New Zealand, the Comedy and Magic Club in Hermosa Beach, Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and Brooklyn's Theatre. Joining me today is a wellspring of variety talent, Lindsay Benner. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. I always love a big hello. <laughs> That's what you get. <laughs> Thank you. You have quite a toolkit of skills. Do you mind sharing the things that you do? Absolutely. Yes. I started as a juggler. That's the act that I have called the Book of Love that I performed at the Magic Castle and that was nominated for Best Stage Magician of the Year. It was the first non-magician that was uh, nominated for that award. And I... I had that that juggling routine that took me all over the world and that was, you know, what I did in the college market for years and I had a full-length version of that and that's what I took to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and that's also what I did at the at, at the college shows. When I started doing more than more than just that that show that I had created, the entire show kind of encompasses all of my party tricks. I had a show in LA called the women in vaudeville that I did with uh, Bob Baker Marinette theater. And it was a true variety show. And so that was a really wonderful opportunity for me to get more skills and, and, and collect different things like ventriloquism. I would do some magic. I would do some, some puppetry. I escape from a straight jacket. I do do all kinds of, of stuff that I was inspired to do because of all of the, all of the interesting acts that I've seen throughout my travels. What's interesting is, how your stage presence is transferable regardless of what you're doing. But I always think of a juggler as a very skilled a talent. <laughs> the jugglers that I've known, I've gone to the international jugglers conventions. It's You're not all talk. You have to be able to do the tricks. If you go to a magic convention, people say, I used to float a lady or I used to do this thing. And they talk about it. But at a jugglers convention, it's like, can you do four? Can you do five? Can you do seven? Can you do back crosses behind the back? Can you... Sure. And then people in the gym, they show each other. It amounts to being hours and hours of discipline, practicing and dropping and picking up. Yes. There's almost expectation in a way of perfection when the viewer watches it mm. because they get kind of crestfallen if something falls. But yes, you've got gravity working against you the whole time. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there are a couple of different approaches to juggling. And one of them is definitely that high skill practice many, many hours a day, get like, get these things that nobody can hit unless you are really practicing all day long. And that is always, especially if you have context for how difficult it is, that's always amazing to see people pull that off. Unbelievable stuff people are doing. And, and what's cool about the internet is I feel like people are really challenging each other to get more and more creative in the ways that they're juggling. And there's just beautiful, beautiful stuff coming, coming out of the works with juggling in particular. And then I think you have the entertainer juggler, which is what I believe I am. And that is someone who can take the skill of juggling, which I'm, I'm all right at it. I'm not going to go to a convention and wow any major jugglers in that convention, but I am going to take the juggling skills that I have and make them interesting to an audience that knows nothing about juggling. And I think that's, that's the, particular skill I have as a juggler is translating it 
to the audience to make them connect to it because it's not the easiest thing to connect to in terms of someone who doesn't really hasn't really tried to do it or doesn't really know how difficult it is just by looking at it. You're proficient though. You are are actually quite a good juggler, but the fact is is that you are using your personality, you're using your humor, you're using music to tell a different story. Mm-hmm. And in some ways the juggling is the backdrop for that. It's the excuse to be on stage. That's I think yeah. something that I was talking to to Matt King about in his podcast was just, you know, it's hard for me to be on stage without a trick. A trick both fuels my creativity, but it also makes me feel like even if I suck, at least I have a trick to show them. (laughs) At least if I have something, something to show for myself. Yeah. Well, I like how you referred to it earlier as one of your party tricks, because, you know, in a way you are bringing it to the party, regardless of whether (laughs) the party is a household or a theater full of people. And you're displaying uh, in a show and tell way. I think once you have the trick, One of the things that I kind of suspect about you is that then the routining, the trick is really just the structural thing to build off of. Yes. And then you're creating all of the other part of the routine that makes it interesting and certainly customizes it to your personality. Absolutely. That's that's an astute observation. How do you approach your creative process when developing a routine? Usually what I do is I am inspired by a song or I find myself inspired by either a song or a trick, or maybe both. The song will inspire the trick, the piece of music will inspire the trick, or I will have the trick and find the perfect piece of music for it and then learn more places that the trick can go within that music. So it's a really, it's like this blossoming thing that can happen. Like when I juggle knives with balancing things on my head, that's a trick. And in the storyline of Book of Love, it's our first date. And we have, and so I I put two teacups and a teapot and I have him hold knives like a, like a bouquet of flowers. And before I give him the knives, I make sure my lipstick's straight in the knives. And that always gets a laugh and pass him the knives and sit there. And, and then the, then Mambo number no. five come, comes on and it's this really fun song and it's just you know this really oppor- like beautiful opportunity to play with him and be silly and then have a have a first date where i balance the teacups on my head and then right. he passes me the knives i lay down i stand up and i juggle the knives all to the music and that routine happened with sort of both together it is obviously you have the skill and you have the music but the notion of having the first date be the foundation <laughs> is something now that people can say oh these people are just meeting. Oh, she's doing this weird stuff. How is he going to react to that? All the stuff that comes with a date, really the storytelling, that's kind of a sage advice to anybody that's putting something together that it is more than the elements. It's more than the parts. Mm-hmm. So adding some kind of a creative perspective to that. We both, you and I have many friends. We are just meeting really. I met you at the Thanksgiving party, you met, uh, you mentioned Mac King earlier about Mac yes. King's podcast. Yes. So one of the great things about Mac is he knows all the variety acts and music acts and comedy acts in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And he hosts a Thanksgiving uh, event for all the orphan entertainers, <laughs> but a hugely skilled group of people who then after we eat, the patio gets cleared off and it gets reset for a fireside comedy show that is essentially everybody do whatever they want. You know, yeah. to kind of amuse each other. And that is kind of a special a backstage view, I think, of what being an entertainer is, is 
everybody has been in the same stomping grounds. You brought something this year that was quite silly and funny. <laughs> and had you done it before or? No, that was the that was the first time I did it. Best right way to write a show is to book it. Is what I've always heard. In that particular show, I had had this. I, I'd heard that song that I did it the the cheesecake song by Louis Armstrong. I heard it, and I just this whole routine kind of came to me when I heard it. And I thought, oh man, this is such a wild idea. I don't really want to do this a lot, but I would love to do it at least once. When Mac asked me to do a little something at that show, I thought, well, this is, I have to do it then. I have to do it here because this is, this is where you do something like that, right? Like having, having an opportunity to try something that you have in your head and the low stakes and for among friends. And that was a perfect environment to really, I, I, any venue or show that reminds me of being a child telling my parents, okay, sit there. I've worked on this thing all day and I do some silly dance or whatever the thing is. And, you know, they have to sit there and watch it and they applaud. I'm like, great. It, that, that spirit of when you were a kid going like, okay, this is, I got an act yeah. <laughs> until you see this. Yeah. yeah. Let me give the uh, listener a little bit of context because we were vague there, but you have the Louis Armstrong cheesecake song yeah. you're using each of your hands without any puppets on them. You're using the hands as puppets. So there's yeah. a pair of eyes on each hand. And while you're singing, the two hands are feeding you cheesecake it was regular cheesecake yeah slamming it into your face <laughs> and making a, a good mess so re- being reminded of being a kid was that's what my kids looked like when they fed themselves on the high chair you know <laughs> yeah that totally was, uh, i i really enjoy hand puppet stuff where it, it seems like you know the hand puppet is doing something to you that you don't want them to do to you but you're doing it I love the, I don't know, there's a beautiful metaphor <laughs> of, of how we are with ourselves and how we are sometimes our greatest torturer without being aware of it. So yeah. I have another routine where I do the ventriloquism with a, with a hand puppet like that. And at the end of it, we get in a fight and the hand suggests that I do my special process and that process is painting my face green. And I'm really upset about it at first. And then I sing, it's not easy being green while painting my face green. It's a very avant-garde, weird, weird routine that I did at Magic Live late night the other day. And it was great. I, it's, it's a really fun, fun, it's fun to have venues like that and like Matt King's to do kind of the weird late night stuff that is, that's some of my favorite stuff to do. What's important in our business, it's the leap of faith of trying anything. Mm. There has to be a first time. Now, the more you do it, the less real risk there is. Like, you know, you're not going to die and you know, you're not going to yeah. be truly humiliated. In some ways, you kind of don't know if it's going to be hilarious or the worst giant turd that was ever floating in the punch bowl. Sometimes you don't know. I did a psychic surgery act where I was operating on somebody on stage and I knew kind of technically what I was going to do, but- <laughs> But it it made a big mess, so it didn't feel like practicing it at home was worthwhile. It was yeah. sort of like, you've got to find a place to dive in. So we yeah. did do it at a place you performed, the Comedy Magic Club at Hermosa Beach. Nice. And it, they had a special Halloween show, which made it felt like, oh, that's the place. Sure. This is a macabre idea, and we had somebody that was willing to be our assistant that we operated on. And so if you know anything about the history of psychic surgery, they don't really, they pretend to enter the person's body, but they're taking out little organs of chickens and things like that. 
And yeah. so I had handfuls of spaghetti and <laughs> a big pump of blood and whatever. And I, I didn't even test it. So the fact that when I stepped on it, the stuff shot out of the guy's body, I hit the ceiling and spaghetti was going on the front row and people <laughs> were ooing and aahing, whatever. And honestly, I, I didn't know if it was a two minutes or 20 minutes. Like it was just a wow. adrenaline rush. Yes. Kind of crazy. So yes. the funny part was that we only did it the one time yeah. and it became, the story became more infamous than the actual performance, right? <laughs> like, when are you going to do that again? You know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, that's so uh, great. And the guy we operated on was particularly funny. So he, you know, like he really made it, he really sold it. So He was reacting in just such yeah, a Yeah, because he didn't expect to be, to have so much stuff coming out of him. And yeah. then we had a big stapler that we stapled him shut with afterwards. And, you know, the audience was, I guess it was more of a haunted house reaction than, yeah. than a comedy reaction, but. That's but it was great. fun. It was fun to bring the stuff down. When did you do that? Oh, many, many years ago. Wow. I wish I could remember, but there is some footage. That's the other thing about the internet now is some of this footage surfaces sometimes. What used to be a safe one night only routine yeah. sometimes comes back to haunt you. But yeah, <laughs> um, that's great. There are a lot of very eclectic theater spaces and performances that you've been to that most people don't get an opportunity to go to. So I want to start with the Edinburgh Fringe Festival about your experience and describe to the audience what's happening during those weeks, like how much is happening. I would love to go back as a spectator. I had actually never been before I took myself there and produced my own show there. It was one of those bucket list things that I thought, well, I'll wait till maybe I have a little bit more support behind me. And then I was looking at maybe having children pretty soon. And I thought, well, I got to do it before I have kids. So I just got to go self-produce and I'll go do it and I'll experience it. And I, I tend to be a, a cannonball kind of a girl. I'm just like cannonball, I go, go in it and see what I learn and see what, you know, make the mistakes I got to make and, and, uh, and get what I can out of it. And I, it was a, it was a crazy festival to do that with. Like it was, it was, uh, it's the, I mean, I think it is the largest fringe theater festival in the world. It's, it's absolutely like 4,000 shows happen in, in the, in this little pocket of Edinburgh and you're just constantly flooded with people trying to get you to see their shows and you're trying to get people to come to your show. I didn't know anything. I, I had actually, I got, uh, from Stephen Banks gave, gave me a, gave me a, a little, uh, lesson cause he had done it as he was giving me all the advice he could give me. I could feel this kind of like, Oh it's a lot. Like it's a lot to try and get people butts in seats when there's so many people doing it. But you also have this opportunity to see the best, most interesting stuff that you would never see anywhere else, all in one place. How many shows did you do while you were there? I believe I did 26 shows because I think we had a couple day a couple days off, but it was for most of the month and it was 26 shows uh most every day I think with two 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 days off uh in the theater that I was in. I was in just the caves, actually in the same theater that that Stephen Banks had been in. It was a beautiful venue. Like it truly was like you were in these old, old caves that had tons of history in them and were um, had pubs and, you know, during the plague was, you know, you know that there's like definitely some awful stuff happened there, but it was this beautiful raw stone and very picturesque and, and gorgeous. And it was a wild experience to try and jump in, do it, produce, self-produce and do the show. I learned so much from it, but I got to say, 
if you're thinking of doing it, go first so you get a feeling for it. I had never even done a fringe festival. I mean, that's how green I was. So I, I really, um, I did, I did all right considering. Actually, I got a good review. You're responsible for marketing. Mm-hmm. When you talk about putting butts in seats, yeah. you're talking about also competing with these four thousand other shows yeah. that are happening throughout the night and at the same time, mm-hmm. and one door away. Like people can yeah. literally pop from one thing to the next, right? Yeah. At any. Yeah. And I was a complete unknown in, in Europe. And I mean, my, my goal was to, to sort of maybe perhaps get, get my foot in the door in Europe. And I actually made more contacts back in the United States of people who had gone there to, to do some scouting. So it it actually worked out great, but it was a, a huge endeavor. I would absolutely go back. I probably wouldn't go back with my own show next time. I'd like to, I'd like to go and really just focus on taking in as many shows as I can. I think that that would be my, my goal. In the spirit of those kinds of performers, I know that you work at the Brooklyn Theater in L.A., which is a hidden gem that is a private theater. Yes. And the Larson family owned that estate for many years, and now Erica produces those shows. Yes. Uh, and so you mentioned Stephen Banks. I know that Puddles works there. I know that Mark Fight and Jim Turner and a number of others yes. work there. But that is a really a unique experience and community that yeah that, and what what is that seat maybe 60 people it's a very small very small venue and the stage itself like it's hard to do five balls on that stage because it's so the ceiling is so low but i you know it, it's it's I mean, talk about your like high end. Okay, mom and dad sit there. I'm going to do a show, you know, like it was a, it was a theater that was originally built to show off magic props, to show up an illusion. So it was meant for a small group of people to watch a magic illusion. That was the the original intent of the theater. So the the whole environment is so authentically old Hollywood and it is really some of the peak experiences of my life as performing at that place. And, and because it's such a, it's such a special environment, both with the performance performers that are performing in it. And then also the, the audience is often, it's, it's all invite only. And yeah. so you have, you know, I had Gina Davis. I know that I've seen Dick Van Dyke in the audience. Oh yes. Dick Van Dyke. Well, one of those things that happened that is rare for me is that I pulled up someone on stage and he was not cooperating as a volunteer and he was being very rude. He was trying to be funny looking at his phone while I was trying to get his attention. And so I sent him back. And I was just look, scouring the audience. Someone was sitting, was standing next to the bar and he just looked like a nice fellow. So I just went up to him. I put how I get my volunteers. I put a tie around their neck and then use the tie to pull them on stage. And I, I had taken the tie off of the, the bad guy and put it on this guy. And I whispered in his ear, be nice. And I pulled him on stage and he was an absolute treasure on stage. And then after the show, I went up to him and I said, thank you so much for saving my butt, man. You were so great. And then I looked at him and I was like, oh, he looks familiar. Why does he look so familiar? So I I told him, I said, gosh, if we met, you look familiar. And he said, he was so generous. He said, yeah, you too. I know I can't place it, but yeah, you too. And I was like, oh, that's so funny. And then I realized it's taken me, like we we say, okay, thanks again. And he was like, yeah. And he was so sweet. And then I realized, oh my God, that was Ryan Gosling. 
Oh, <laughs> and was wow. like, oh. And so later I, I go up to him, I'm like, I'm sorry, I didn't rec- I didn't realize it was you. And and it, I just saw his whole like demeanor drop. I felt terrible. <laughs> he was he was so happy to not be recognized for a, a hot minute. But right. it's it's the kind of audience where you just you don't know who's gonna be there and it just feels the environment is old Hollywood. The people there are beautiful Hollywood people that you're just like, I, I get to entertain these entertainers. This is like the, the, this is the special little cove where people get to see truly unique entertainment and these truly unique entertainers get to entertain these really big stars. And it feels very, it's, it just feels, it's so Hollywood, you know? Yeah. It is kind of an inner circle sort of experience. It's sort of like mm. you're stepping through a looking glass because they're produced at random. They're produced when a show comes together and mm-hmm. invites go out and the family or the regular performers are also trying to bring something new to the party because it's yeah. there's a little bit of an inside wink that wants to go on there. Yes. So it's fun. I, I, every time I see, I live in Austin, Texas. So when I see pictures pop up or I know a night went down over there, it always feels like, oh, something unique was put in the universe last night. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now, I feel like we, all of us that started, I, we've started doing shows there, I think around 12 years ago is when it all began, uh, maybe 10, 10 years ago, something like that. And so I feel like we all, we've all been on this boat and we haven't really known where it's headed. We still don't know really where it's going, but it's just a particular unique gathering of of entertainers and we've all been performing there for 10 years and loving it. And every time we're there, we're just like, this is so beautiful. And the garden is incredible. The whole, the whole experience is really magical and very special. In addition to being a performer, you mentioned that you produce an all female variety show. It was called women in vaudeville. I don't, I, it's, it's no longer happening, but I did that for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. And while you were doing it, you know, how big was the stable of women that were involved in doing it and were people at different levels and you were sort of bringing people up in that because there's vaudeville is a bit of an old school variety acts exist, but vaudeville was from like 1880 to 1920. Right. Sure. So there's yeah. a bit of a flashback of anything burlesque or anything that might be in, in a discipline that's kind of silent performance. I guess I wonder how true to the women in vaudeville you, that you all work towards. Yeah. Well, I think for me, vaudeville is kind of like entertainment that involves some kind of skill that, I mean, all entertainment involves skill, but I guess what I'm talking about is like, so tap dancing, for example, or, or singing and dancing or hula hooping or beatboxing. I just love beatboxing. And I think it's a really beautiful art form. I wonder, I'm sure. And and this is a beautiful thing about doing a show in Los Angeles. So many entertainers and so many high skilled people are in Los Angeles. And this was a way for me to get to know more of them as I would put on these shows. I would put this out on Facebook. Who is the best female beatboxer in Los Angeles? Send them to me. And I got this incredible beatboxer. Uh, track nine was her uh, stage name. And she then started performing at Booby Trap and started doing variety shows after that. She had been more of just a, a competition beatboxer. And then she started through doing my show and then doing Booby Trap and then seeing that there was this whole other way to take take her skill into an entertainment avenue. She started doing that all over the place. And that was that was one of my little crown jewel moments yeah. of, you know, I, I, I scouted a thing and found her and she found this whole other world because of that. It was really nice. cool. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned Booby Trap, which to give the listener context is Scott Neary's salute to variety and 
Yes. Eclectic performing. <laughs> another another place like Brookledge where it was like a gathering of all of us and his particular unique. He he likes some weird stuff, man. And so it was he's a fun curator when it comes to shows and he did it every week. And it was and it had to be a pretty large amount of performers every week as well because uh, it was four minutes only. There was a moratorium on the performance. Part. Yeah. Yeah. And if you did more than four minutes, you would get booby trapped and bubbles would but that, go. But and, that was a public show. Anybody could go buy a ticket to that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Brookledge. And my show was the same. It was public. And then Brookledge is the invite only. Yeah. When you did uh, in New Zealand, when you went to the World Buskers Festival, were you brought in and paid and then passed a hat? Or was it strictly a street performing festival where you kind of were, it was all about making the pitch for your money. Well, that it was a little bit of, it was all of the above. Uh, that is okay. one of considered one of the best buskers festivals. And that, that happened to be my first buskers festival I ever did. And I had had kind of in my head, street performing was a very hard thing to learn how to do. And I had, so I had to kind of set a goal of, okay, I have to keep doing this until I get to travel with it. Like until I can, until I get booked at a festival I have to keep going. <laughs> I can't just quit. Mm. And so World Buskers Festival was my first festival that I did, which other street performers will be like, you are insane. I can't believe you got that as a first festival. Let's do it. Let's do good. So when I went and did my first festival there, they, I mean, they flew me out and they, they paid me a little bit. And then you made most of your money in, in all of the shows, in, in passing the hat and the shows. And they had a really nice setup for you. And they would do, they, they, they made, they made every effort and they knew the staff there really knew how to set you up to win in terms of making sure you had the best shows, the best time slots, the best positions in the city, the best everything. They were really conscious of what made it the most financially abundant for the performers. And it was really a, gr a great environment. Festivals do tip the audience off. They're coming with some money in their pocket to yeah. be able to share. But it yeah. is funny, street performing, and I don't have the experience that you have, but I did uh, quite a bit of it early on. And mm. one of the things that I think is critical about it, it that, that is different than other things is that you have to get the audience to buy the ticket after the show is over. Right. That is why you have to be so good at the pitch. That's why you have to be able to close before they dart off. You have to know, you know, the art of, of having them free themselves of the money while they're still smiling. Right. Yeah. So, and so it really is an artful, important exchange because you want to drive it with value. You can't go do a terrible act and expect people to put money in the hat. And even the beginning of doing a street act, you've got to start with nobody in your theater. Yeah. You have to stop a couple of people and kind of grow that organically and then hug them in a little closer so people are trying to see what's happening. And the, the people that have good luck at it, of course, are street dancers and companies where they have a they can get a stir going quickly. Sure. But yeah. if you're a talking act or you're doing something silent or you're trying to lure them in with something delicate, it's really hard. Yeah. Probably one of the, the greatest skills that I got from street performing was understanding what actually engages an audience. Like it's not the trick that engages the audience. It's you doing some things on stage that they have to try and solve the problem of what it is that you're doing and trying to figure out where it is that you're going with that. And the, at least this was my, my, what I took away from it was the more I can get them to be asking questions, 
in what I'm doing, which in silent comedy is, is great. Like it's, it's a very useful engaging people by, by giving them as little answers as possible until you, and then eventually giving them a payoff. But like that, that it's the, that drawing people in is a far, like it can be, you can bludgeon them and have that be a way that you draw them in, like with the big dancers and all that. And people, you just trick, 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 and then you're done. But I found because of the, the nature of what I did, it was a very just moving your stuff from one side of the the pitch to the which the pitch is the stage the street stage moving your stuff very pointedly will get people to stop and look question and that's it create a curiosity i think most people are not aware of what that whole life of street performing is yeah you also have to be able to have control over all of your props and I, when I did it in New York City, which was wow. a naive move, I mean, I had my hat disappear when I turned my back and the money went away. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. L.A. was similar. I I, I started street performing in, in San Francisco, which was a much kinder, gentler way to start. But I, <laughs> yeah. And when I came to San Francisco, I would usually saddle on to somebody's time, right? There was a great yeah. juggler named the butterfly man, uh, Robert Nelson. Oh yes. He, you knew the butterfly man. Yeah. And at pier 39, he oh. loved my stuff. So he would always say, Hey, come down. And, and one of the most interesting things that and he did quite well is your interaction with the audience, the bringing mm. the person up and making a relationship happen where they're yep. helping or they're holding or, and I know that I saw a really fun routine. It might be your book of love routine where you're wearing a bra with some desk bells on it. Clerk bells. Oh, yeah. 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 So it's interesting. That is a, it's a fun routine and it's really engaging and you have this sheepish guy. I guess they do all kinds of things, <laughs> but I wonder if that mm -hmm. has changed over the years in that how the Me Too movement may change how people behave when you're sort of trying to entice them to help in that particular routine. <laughs> Does it change at all? Or do you find that because you're female and you're doing it, that it behaves differently. I didn't feel it changed much for me. I became more aware of what I was doing, I think, in in a way that I think I wasn't thinking about before. I definitely took out the fake out kiss where you have someone kiss you on the cheek and then you, you know, I took that out even before the, the Me Too movement. But, that you know, I had that in for a long time because it got a big laugh. And then I realized, no, that's state rape. <laughs> that's not fair. Yeah. Just because I'm a girl doesn't mean it's okay. I feel like with all of my stuff with the volunteer routines, every step of the way, it's a it's a question uh, of yes or no, and then they answer yes or no with what they're with what they do. And I never, I'm very careful to never be pushy or or if they are not interested in doing it, if they're really uncomfortable, I I back off and I don't do yeah. it. Um, and often people are not. I'd say it's happened hundreds and hundreds of times that I've done the show. I've only had someone be uncomfortable with it and they didn't do it. And I, I let them go back very graciously like twice. So it's, it's very rare. I try to make it as, as lighthearted and fun and silly as possible so that it, it, it's not taken very seriously, but also is very clear that it's all fun. But if it's not fun, no. then they don't have to do it. <laughs> no, no, it's all extremely charming. It's very lovely piece. One of the things that's magical about having somebody on stage is that you want them to enjoy it. Because the audience watches that person and thinks, oh, that could be me. And if that person looks uncomfortable or is restrictive, they could be next. And that's a very artful thing to do, which is to keep everybody 
in play at the same time because you're going to need somebody for the next trick. Sure. I took a, a class with Avner the Eccentric, Avner Eisenberg, and he's he has really great clown clown principles and excellent volunteer principles. And one of them that he had that I that I really took to heart was when you are finished with your volunteer, what you want the rest of the audience to think is, gosh, I wish that was me. Ah. And that's sort of a goal of mine uh, is to make sure that everybody Anybody who would have seen him on stage would have thought, oh, I wish I could have done that. That would have been, that looked fun. I suppose not everybody would have that feeling, but that's, that's the, that's the goal that that's, that's where I'm going. And I, and I will say that like, I think a, a lot of my creative process having come from the street, doing street performances, my, my main gig for like my first, the t- first 10 years of my career was getting that connection of how the audience sees one of their own on stage mm-hmm. And that immediately makes them far more engaged than they would be without one of their own on stage. And I've, I've always, I've, in some ways, I felt like it's a crutch. But I realize it's it, not everybody is good at volunteer work. So I, I also take it as like, oh, well, I guess that's that's just something I'm particularly good at. So that's what I do. But I've always found it to be, it feels like a cheat because you're you're taking someone on stage and everybody's immediately interested because they're like, oh, one of us. <laughs> what is she going to do with one of us? Yeah, you but know? here's the other thing, though. It, it really does lean into your improvisational skills and your convivial hosting skills and because you are inviting someone to the party and essentially introducing them to everybody else, and you are creating a brand new relationship, whether you like it or not. You're now (laughs) comedy partners, even if the comedy comes from resistance sometimes. And I I guess one of the things that I always felt, and I'm sure this, these moments happen for you is that we are looking for the lightning strike. We're looking for the element of surprise while we wanted to have some controlled chaos based on the way we know the outcome is going to be. I welcome laughing heartily at something I didn't expect. And the audience sees us laugh at something and goes, Oh, this night is special. Something right mm. now is happening that's never happened before. How is she going to mm. deal with it? How is he going to deal with it? That's what you want. If you could have something like that happen in every show, it's ideal. And 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 I guess in positive way, because I did it <laughs> in my career, I fanned out a pack of cards and a kid slaps them out of my hands instead of picking a card. Mm-hmm. And you just look at yeah. it and you go, wait, what? Why would you do that? You know, like I'm not going <laughs> to bend over and pick all these cards up for this little brat. Um, but then you've yeah. got to decide what choice to make there. Do. Yeah. Are you yeah. going to correct them? And it's, yeah. you know, at that point you can only say, oh, I guess you hate card tricks. Let's do something else. Because mm-hmm. if you chastise them, then the audience turns on you like nothing. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Like you can't be the teacher and the preacher and the, the sheriff in that situation. Yeah, it's that live, like the going with it. I love the question to the marionettist of what what do you do when your strings get tangled? How do you untangle your strings when you're on stage and trying to puppeteer? And the marionettist says, well, I, I don't. I learn how to do it while they're tangled. You learn through experience how to take those circumstances that are somewhat out of your control. Eventually, it's going to happen where the guy is going to be rude and right. um, have to send him back and, and pick Ryan Gosling instead. That, but that's <laughs> the win, right? The audience must have just, yep. and you not knowing who he was, even if they thought you did, <laughs> probably played into how they responded, yeah. right? So, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's really when a pro, when you can tell somebody's a pro, though, when, when something can change sure. or, you know, I had somebody cutting a piece of rope 
cut the tip of my finger off. And like, just, oh my God. I was like, the blood was getting on the road. I was like, what <sighs> in the world? Right in the middle of a, like a, a festival thing. And I guess you're, you're kind of a character within your own play. So the audience doesn't mm. expect you to feel pain or to, if you're balancing something and it falls on your head, I guess they just want to see how you respond to it. Yeah. Yeah. And often they'll go, that was meant to happen, right? right? Or you, you we're going to, yeah. yeah. Oh, that was so funny <laughs> on that, that show where you stepped in the dog poo, you know, like I didn't mean to. Yeah. Yeah. When I did that routine where I paint my face green, I had, everything was last minute as they are. I'm trying to be a single mom and, and have a full-time job. And so I had rushed and gotten some face paint real fast from the store. And I'm used to cream face paint that just comes and it just, you know, just put it on and it it's cream face paint. What are you going to do? And uh, I get there and I hadn't even, you know, I was like, okay. And I go on stage to do my routine. And when it's time to paint my face, I, I pull out the thing, I open it up and it's the kind of face paint where you need to wet it oh. first. You need to put water on it. And I didn't realize it. So it's just, it's just solid cake. And I'm in the, and I, I need to paint my face green. And so I just start oh. licking it. <laughs> I just start licking, licking the pad to get the to get the moisture and it works and I and and everyone thought that this was a bit that this was part of the the routine because it was so funny it was like just oh licking gosh. it to yeah. make it it was so silly but it but it, it it everybody was like that you had now you have right. to do that from now on and yeah. I'm like no I don't the but, necessity yeah. is a mother of <laughs> yes, invention at that moment yeah yes I'm glad it worked out <laughs> yeah totally do you consult for other performers on their routining and that kind of thing are you a coach. Uh, I love coaching. Yeah. It's one of my, it's one of, I get so much out of coaching. It's really, cause then you get to be, I get to kind of be a part of, I don't feel like I'm doing much other than reflecting what the other, what the performer is wanting to do. That's my, my goal is that it's, I'm not telling them what to do or having any kind of say in, in how they're, how they're expressing themselves. I'm just a, a I'm a, I'm a space and a reflection of what they're trying to accomplish. And I've had, I've had such a good time coaching people's routines. Uh, I, I particularly like it when someone comes to me and is like, okay, I have either an idea for a routine or here's a routine that I want to make better. And I, I that's my, I love, I love coaching. <laughs> Do you have words uh, of encouragement related to originality or finding your voice for people who maybe have, you know, the skill or the tricks of something that everybody else does, but trying to get them to kind of, look at it in a different way? Figuring out where to start can sometimes feel like the most frustrating part of the creative process. Frank Gehry talks about that. He's a, an architect and he says, you know, starting sometimes is just, it's, it's excruciating. <laughs> and then once you get going, then it's not so bad. And then you actually start to feel it and you start to play with it a bit. That's the thing that can be so hard, especially when you're trying to put a routine together that's intended for a live audience, is that there's no way to really test it out or try it out until you're in front of people. If you're trying to tune an instrument where the only way you can hear if it's out of tune is by playing it in front of people and that no one wants to hear something that's out of tune, you know, it's terror. It's a terrible experience, but it is what you have to do as a, as a, especially as a either comedian or a, a variety entertainer or, you know, it's anywhere where there's no fourth wall and you're really just trying to, to get connect with your audience. The tools for me of creation have been make a deadline for myself. And if there is not a deadline, create a deadline, throw a party, make yeah. soup, invite your friends over and say, I want to show you something. Can I get some feedback? And that way there's a, 
make it like three people, yeah. five people, 10 people, right. it doesn't matter. And, and just create environments for yourself where you can, you can create. I sometimes will rent a space specifically just to know that I'm spending money on renting a space will, even if it's just $10 an hour, you know, if I can get a good deal or, you know, whatever, just to know that like this time means more and I'm in a space and I'm creating in, in this space to give myself both environments and deadlines to create in. And, and if I do have an inspiration, like I did with that song, which has happened before where I'll hear a song and I'll come up with an idea, just the act of following through with that idea and making the time to do that. And not just like, you know, the, the straitjacket escape act that I do now, that's been my bread and butter after book of love and that I perform it in Vegas at opium and the, in the show at the cosmopolitan. It's, it's a routine that I came up with uh, inspired by being a street performer and watching straitjacket escape acts in, in the street and hearing this song, no one, by Alicia Keys and then putting the two together of like, that would be hilarious uh, if I lip synced to this song while wearing a straight jacket and just made everything mean, you know, be yeah. crazy. And I, I said this to a friend, I said, I had this idea. And he said, it's not funny. It's actually not going to work. And I believed him. I was like 23. I was like, Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're right. I, you know, and it just verbally told him. I didn't yeah. show him. I just verbally told him. And it's, I mean, it's fine. I had no place to do it. It's not, you know, nothing, no harm, no foul. But l like maybe seven years later, wow. literally. So I wow. had the idea. Seven years later, there was an opportunity for me to do that routine. Uh, Stephen Haves was doing um, uh, a, a clown party for Bastille Day. And it was a lip sync, a lip sync party. So clowns come and do a lip sync, a clown lip sync. And so I thought, oh my gosh, this is the perfect place to just do this idea I had. It's just, I need to follow through with this idea I had seven years ago. And I put it together and it, and it worked. Like I had a, about a minute of lull time where it didn't really, cause it's about a four minute routine. So I had about a minute in there that I needed to work on, but all in all, it was, it was at, right out the gate. It was a great routine and it connected and it, and so the, the, I think the moral of that story, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not mad about it at all. It came about in my life when it needed to come about. And then it became like the booby trap routine that I did that then when I did booby trap in Vegas, that's how I ended up getting the job in Vegas. Cause I did, I basically showcased for all the people here and got this job and, you know, changed my life. So trust your creative, what it, what, what gives you that little like giggle. I found that like sometimes when I'm trying to make things funny or trying to cr be creative, it's not as fruitful for me as when it's just like kind of right. bubbling up. And then, and so every time it bubbles up for me, I, I've learned that I really just have to follow through with it anywhere. Even just my friend's Thanksgiving right. party, I can just yeah. do it. Self-amusement is a good gauge because sometimes yeah. it is just yeah. funny to us, but because it's funny to us, it becomes funny to others. And I really do think that it's a birthing process. And if you don't, Put it out mm -hmm. there, you'll never know what it's going to become. So ideas are, they sit dormant sometimes way too long from fear, from external forces, from other people. But, you know, good for you. I, I actually love that lesson. You know, I would say there's many things that I could point at mm. and say, you know, people go, how'd you ever come up with it? It was like, well, it wasn't coming up with it was so hard. It was executing it. It was like, oh, is it worth the money to build that thing? Or is it, or should I chase that costume down? Or should I do that thing? And I say yeah. always the answer is yes. It doesn't always mean it's going to be great. 
No. But but the <laughs> but the trial by fire is what makes you more and more fearless. I would equate it to tightrope walking. Being two feet off the ground or two thousand feet off the ground is no different to somebody who learns the skill of doing that and in terms of the risk. You can be afraid two feet off the ground and go, I can't do it, I can't do it. But if you do it, each little step you take every time you do it, you become much more secure in taking risks. And then it does, there's no risk at all. It's kind of like the risk is, oh, I don't want to lose this opportunity. This one night where it's a lip-syncing thing, oh, I have an idea for that. And those always feel good. They always feel good when, you, yeah. when you're as surprised as everybody else that... That, that it worked. <laughs> yeah. Or that they see the humanity in it or the human condition. Yeah. Yeah. Will Ferrell had it nice. He, I think it was in some acceptance speech or somewhere. I just remember him saying this. I, I loved it. He said, you know, every idea I've had is like a, like a dart that I've thrown at a board. And, you know, I just keep throwing darts at boards. Some of them stick and some of them don't. But I don't, I just keep throwing that I don't stop. You guys have seen some stuff that is stuck. There's a far more on the yeah. floor <laughs> that you have not seen, you know, and I think that's also a really nice lesson is that, yeah, you just keep throwing those darts and it's some will stick and some won't. That's just yeah. keep playing. So I just want to tell people that they can see you at opium on a regular basis, right? In Las Vegas. Yes. On and off. I'm a, I'm a sub act now. I was in the show and then they did a big overhaul of the show. And so now I, I understudy the host role. So sometimes I'm the host and then I'm also a sub act. So my straight jacket act is occasionally right. in the show when, when other performers are out. But if they want to see more and learn more, they can go to lindsaybenner.com and Lindsay has an A, not an E near the end of your name there. That's correct. And Benner is B-E-N-N-E-R. Do you have an Instagram account? I do at Lindsay Benner. Thank you for investing a little time. Yeah, I got to say, I was looking at this podcast and, and listening to it a bit. And, and I'm just really honored that you asked me to be a, to be on here because you've, you've interviewed such amazing people. And, and and it just seems like a really lovely venture. And, and something that I particularly, I remember when I was like 22, right out of college and listening to NPR a lot and just not really having... A, an understanding of like, so, like so much drive at that age, you know, you just, you want, you just want it to work and you want to do good and you want to be, and I just wanted someone to just tell, just basically do what you're doing with this podcast. I just, I wanted to hear, I wanted to drink up this kind of content. And so I just want to thank you for putting this together. And I think it's a really valuable thing. And I, I hope it gets to those angsty 22 year olds or those angsty 41 year olds, whoever, whoever needs it. I'm, I'm hoping it gets to them. I welcome this conversation. I like amplifying voices of artists and finding about people's creative process. And I think that we learn from each other, regardless of the discipline we're in. And so I learned something from every episode and we're just creating what I consider to be a listening library for the curious. So you fit right in there. So oh, uh, thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. I'm honored to be a part of it. Thank you. All right. Cheers. I can't wait to see the next act that comes from your brain. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. 
You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to create.